0: Well, as we work through a series in 1 Samuel, uh, which is in the Old Testament, our scripture reading, our first scripture reading is the opposite from the New Testament, from Philippians chapter three. As you can see there in your bulletin, Tyler is going to come and read it for us. Tyler, if you would.
1: Philippians three, starting in verse one. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead.
0: All right, we're gonna turn our attention uh, more directly to the scriptures now. Uh, we're in a series in 1 Samuel. If you don't know anything about 1 Samuel, uh, it's, it's sort of a history of how God reigns and rules as king. Israel has just come out of this very dark time in their history, or they're coming out of it. Uh, everyone was doing right in their own eyes. And now God, the king, sort of enters the affairs of his people to put things right. And we're getting this picture of who we are and who God is. Uh, we are looking, as you can see, uh, at 1 Samuel chapter six in the very first part of uh, first, uh, chapter seven, pardon me. Uh, I'm gonna read it for us, and then we're gonna, we're gonna dive in. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we shall send, tell us with what we shall send to its, it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all, on all of you and on your lands. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods in your land." Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put, it, put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence." The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord, come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, or from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us because he loves us. During university, when I was in university, one reading week, I went to visit a friend who lived in a different city. And while I was visiting, this friend suggested we attend a party that one of her friends was throwing. That sounded fine to me. We packed up the car. We drove over to the place. Now, because I was a university student, I was in full university uniform, blue jeans and a hoodie. Uh, but the party, as it turns out, was in this really nice neighborhood. It was in kind of a townhouse, a walk-up apartment of some kind and i remember walking up the stairs to this place and ringing the doorbell not sure why i was in front but that that was what happened and the young woman who answered the door was wearing a black cocktail dress and then we went inside and not only her but everyone else at the party was in fancy clothing and because it was canadian winter everyone had had brought additional indoor fancy shoes to wear and I was there in blue jeans and a hoodie and comfy socks, you know, and I realized, oh, this was a different kind of party than the one I was anticipating. And if you've been in that situation, maybe you can, maybe you can sympathize. What, what do you do? Do you pretend nothing's wrong? Do you make a joke about it? Do you apologize profusely? That's a very Canadian thing to do. Do, do you just leave? Like, do you just like, I'm just, just done, I'm out? Um, I, I didn't leave, My ro- I was driven there. I didn't have a, a way to leave, it was the Canadian winter. Uh, but I do remember doing some combination of the first three, depending on who I was talking to? What happens when you find yourself unexpectedly in the presence of someone or something great? And think far beyond a university party where you're not dressed for the occasion. What happens if the uh, prime minister drops by your house? And then stretch your imagination further. What happens if uh, today when you get home, you open your apartment door and an angel is unexpectedly standing there? What happens? And then of course, what if you encountered God himself unexpectedly? What would you do? How would you act? What would you say? Well, the Israelites find themselves in such a predicament today. The Philistines unexpectedly return the ark. It comes trundling down the hill, sort of out of nowhere, and that has its own set of interesting things. We'll talk about it. But the response of the Israelites is quite curious. Some are very excited. They're thrilled by the return. Let's have a sacrifice. There's a party going on or whatever. Others don't seem to care too much. Clearly, some of them do something wrong. We'll get into that. And then finally, the ark just gets moved to a different spot. Some Abinadab's guy, who you know, his house on a hill. But none of these people expected the Ark back. It was lost, it was gone into Philistine lands, and then all of a sudden it was returned. I'm gonna structure our time in, in the following way. We're first gonna talk about the, respon- or the return of the Ark, that's the first part, what, what's going on with all the Philistines, and then the response to the Ark, what's going on with all the Israelites. Well, we learn in verse 1, the ark's been gone seven months. That's an important time marker because seven months took only one chapter in Samuel. Sometimes if you're kind of reading through the scriptures, uh, it, it feels like things are happening quite quickly. If I would have asked you before today, well, how long was the ark of God in the house of Dagon and amongst the, the cities of the Philistines, you're like, a week, maybe two weeks? No, it's actually a number of months. It was more than half a year. Seven months have elapsed. And in that seven months, if you, remember, if you were here last week, the God of the, the Philistines, he got decapitated. The people of various Philistine cities, wherever the Ark went, there was general panic, maybe bubonic plague, there was tumors going on. And in, in this chapter, we learned that there's mice involved as well. It's pretty crazy times. And the Philistines decide to send the Ark back in verse two. But when they go to their pagan priests and their pagan diviners, their holy men, they, they, they learn, this is in verse three, well, you can't just send the Ark back by itself. You have to send something with it. You have to send a guilt offering with it. And I think this is really fascinating. I think it demonstrates what we call, you know, in the theological world, general revelation. And what I mean by general revelation is that the Philistines have figured out something true about the universe simply by like the, the nature, simply by, by what you can discern without having any copy of the scriptures, any access to, uh, to God. See, because the Philistines don't know, as far as we know, anything about the God of Israel. They don't have any prophets, they don't have any priests. The Israelites haven't sent some missionaries you know, over there uh, to explain the ways of God to them. We don't know of any Philistine converts. There's no sort of, in quotes, spiritual way for them to understand that an offering should be made for sin. And yet, the Philistine holy men or holy women, the holy people, they understand there is a general principle in the universe. They feel it in their bones that if you hurt someone or if you offend someone or if you damage someone, you can't just say sorry. You can't just sort of do like a little, little, little take back because you know, real damage gets done. You have, there must be a reparation of some kind. There has to be a way to earn your way back to even. The Philistines can't simply return the ark and be like, oh, I guess nothing happened here. Their their wisest men say, oh no, there's gotta be an offering for sin that goes with it. You know, this sentiment is in our culture as well. Think about it. How do you feel when uh, a well-known famous man who's abused women, taken advantage of them for years and years, offers a half-hearted apology? Well, what it feels like is to us is, shouldn't there be more than an apology? He's done all these terrible things. Shouldn't he have to earn it back somehow? We're in this curious place as modern people, because I'm speaking culturally. Culturally, we don't really believe in sin. We don't really believe in guilt. We don't really believe in shame, but we feel their effects. And we can't just do these little take backs as if nothing has happened. Something truly bad happens and we're like, well, he's gotta find a way to pay for that, doesn't he? Or she? Do the Philistines believe in guilt and shame? Who knows? But they feel guilty all the same. And their priests say, we gotta, send, we gotta send with the ark a corresponding gift, so that God will turn his wrath and punishment away. So the next question then is obvious. Well, what should we send? <laughs> like, what level of gift corresponds to what we've done? And the Philistine priests say, send them five golden tumors and five golden mice. Now why five? Well, later we see this kind of explanation. It's because there were five cities of of, of Philistia, five rulers of the Philistines. Now why tumors and why mice? Well, that represents the plague, that represents the punishment that the the Philistines experienced. Why gold? Well, the pagan priests understand uh, a costly sacrifice is needed. Taking the Ark of God, mistreating the Ark, putting it in Dagon's temple, that was a serious infraction, serious reparations need to be made. What I'm just trying to say is on many different levels, the, the gift corresponds to the level of sin. But if you notice, there's this whole thing with the cows. <laughs> the Philistines are like, eh, we're not quite sure that God is behind all this, the God of Israel. They're like, let's do a final test. They say, let's put the ark on a cart, we'll aim the cart towards Israel, but pulling the cart are two milk cows who've never pulled the cart. And if you're like, I'm agriculturally ignorant, I got you, let me explain. A milk cow is a cow that's recently given birth. Female cows, they only produce milk when they have recently had a calf. So what the Philistines have done is like, we're gonna take two milk cows, they've never pulled a cart before, they just had cow babies, and, uh, and we're gonna hitch them up. And if you look at the end of verse seven, what we're gonna do after we hitch them up, we're gonna take their calves away from them. Now, new mothers. How do you feel when your baby is taken away from you? You know, not by choice, not because you're leaving them in the nursery or with a babysitter or whatever. You're, you're, you're not happy about it. And mother cow is also not happy about it. The maternal instinct is incredibly strong. And so the test is this. This is all in verse 9. If the cows, if they walk straight away from their new calves and they walk towards Israel, pulling a cart they've never pulled before, then I guess it's Yahweh. I guess the God of Israel was the one who caused the plague after all. But If the cows go back towards their calves, then it's just a big coincidence. They actually use this word, eh, just a coincidence. And we'll keep the ark and keep the gold. And basically, they make the test really hard for God. The default, right, is the cows are like, where's my calf? I'm going back to to wherever they are. But they load up the cart, they hitch up the cows, they put the guilt offering in a box beside the ark, and they let them go. And if you look at verse 12, it says, the cows go, like, beeline, straight, in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. I kind of wonder, is it, is, is it a mad lowing? Is it a happy lowing? Are they, you know, but, they're, but either, either way, whatever kind of lowing they're doing, they turn neither to the right nor to the left. They, they go straight. Now, was the plague happenstance? Was it coincidence? Just a bad break? Man, bubonic plague came out of nowhere. No, the, the, the text is saying, no, it, it was Yahweh. It was the God of Israel. In a strange twist, the clearest words spoken to the Philistines are from two cows. (laughs) God speaks through these animals. This is the way he makes himself known to the Philistines. This is the way they know it was God. He was behind it. Very curious. But the guilt offering is sent to Israel with the ark. But here's the question I kind of want to wrestle with. What is the offering that can turn away God's wrath? That's what the Philistines have asked. What is the offering that can turn away God's wrath? It seems like, you know, from the rest of the story, we don't hear any more about the plague, so maybe the gold mice and the gold tumors are sufficient. As far as we know, we don't, we don't hear any more about that. But let's cast our minds forward to today and kind of consider this question in our own context. I think with a bit of creativity, many of us can imagine corresponding offerings for sins we commit. Right? If you're like, "Ah, I said an unkind thing to a friend or a family member." I think, "Well, I can make it up to them. I can do something nice. I can do do one of their chores and, and make it up to them." If I find myself lusting after a coworker, perhaps we can assure ourselves that if we are really, really sorry for that and try very, very hard not to do it again, that sort of makes up for it. Sort of a way of apologizing to God. Maybe that will be sufficient. Maybe that will be an offering that corresponds to our sin. But the further we go down this road, the more we find out that there are problems with this approach. Because we actually begin to encounter many sins for which there's no good remedy. What are we gonna tell the Tutsi people of Rwanda, massacred by their hundreds of thousands? That they're, oh, we thought of a way the Hutus and the others can, can pay you back. Oh, there's, there's no earthly way to make a massacre right. How do you go to an abused woman and, and, and she's been cheated on and made to feel worthless by her husband? And tell her, oh, your husband is now quite sorry and would like to make it up to you. What kind of offering corresponds to an offense like that? And, and it goes on and on. What do you tell a child relentlessly bullied every day at school? What do you tell a teenager uh, gossiped and lied about every day at high school? If we think, oh, I know a way that I can make a guilt offering that corresponds to the sins I commit, I think we are treating sin far too lightly. We're not really reckoning with the damage sin causes. There was this book written in the Middle Ages by this guy named Anselm, and he wrote this book called Cur Deus Homo, and you're like, I don't speak Latin. Let me, let me translate. It, it means, why did God become man, roughly? Why did God become man? And this theologian Anselm, he's trying to explain why Jesus came as a man, and more specifically, why he had to die. And the book is sort of this conversation between Anselm, he kind of puts himself into his book, and this guy named Boso. And at one one point, Boso speculates, and it's on, on topic here. He says, well, maybe a sincere apology would be enough to take care of sin. Maybe if people really apologized really hard, that God would just pronounce forgiveness. And Anselm says to him, you have not yet considered the weight of sin. You have not yet considered the weight of sin. And Anselm means that for all the wrong things we've done, oh, there must be a payment made. We, the, the Philistines and us, we have exactly the right impulse. You can't just send the Ark back with a little apology note tacked to the side and think, oh, it's all taken care of. That's insufficient. There must be a guilt offering, and the offering must correspond to human sin. Fleming Rutledge, reflecting on Anselm, writes this, and I quote, too many clergy have, arrested, have been arrested for child molestation Too many teachers have been caught sexually abusing their students. Too many supposedly upstanding citizens have downloaded too much child pornography. There is something sickening in human nature, and listen to this, and it corresponds precisely to the sickening aspects of crucifixion. The hideousness of crucifixion summons us to put away our sentimentality and face up to the ugliness that lies just under the surface. Where can we find a guilt offering sufficient for all the wrong done on the face of the earth? Only in the cross. The gold mice, the gold tumors, they weren't enough. And as it turns out, the blood of sheep and goats wasn't enough either. It wasn't with the blood of animals that we were gonna be, be, uh, be ransomed back, but it was with the blood of Jesus Christ. What is the offering that will lift God's heavy hand from us? Well, it's only Jesus. And in a a similar way, what's the remedy for all of our feelings of guilt and shame and fear? There's no earthly way for you to make up for what you've done to yourself and to others. But if you would be free, if you would be forgiven, you can look to the cross of Christ and there see an offering that corresponds to your sin and to mine. So that's the return of the ark. What is the guilt offering that, 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 that deals with it? Part two, the response to the ark. There are a few phases to this story, and you kind of have to read it carefully to understand it. Actually, if you're a small group, if you use the sermon questions, you may have noticed last week I actually included like a little map that I found, you know, on the internet that traces the ark as it goes from the battle, uh, then through Philistine territory, and then up, through, uh, up, up to Beth Shemesh, and then to this place, Kiriath-Jerim. Because if these places are like, I don't know what these mean, there's a, there's a great map online, you, you can look it up but I wanna unpack what happens. Verse 13, the people of Beth Shemesh, they're out in their fields, doing field things, reaping the wheat harvest, and they look up and they see the ark coming in a cart pulled by cows. And it says they rejoiced. It's a beautiful moment. It would have been utterly surprising. They had no reason to think the ark was coming back, and yet here it comes all by itself, like no one attending it, just cows pulling along in, in, in 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 a little cart. Beth Shemesh is a Levite city. So the Levites were one of the tribes, one of the 12 tribes. They were the priests of Israel. And as such, they didn't get their own part of the country, but they got kind of cities sprinkled all over the place. And they were kind of mixed into the midst of all the other tribes. But Beth Shemesh, this is one of their cities. As it turns out, priests know what to do when God unexpectedly provides. It's, it's a little bit gruesome, but they like, they like take the ark down with the golden offerings. Great. They chop up the cart and they make a bonfire right there and they offer these, these cows, these new mothers, sorry mothers, uh, as, as sacrifices. They're not coming back. So, but so far, so good, right? They're offering a sacrifice of praise for the ark being returned. Glory to God. Great. But then something goes wrong. Middle of verse 14, it says the cart had stopped beside the field of Joshua and a great stone was there. And then it says in verse 15, they took the ark, the box of golden mice and tumors, and set them up on the great rock beside the field of Joshua. Now, you're like, doesn't seem like a big deal. Seems fine to me. Why did they put the ark on a big stone? Careful Levites would have known that's not where the ark is supposed to go. The ark is supposed to go into a restricted room in the tabernacle, or at least in a house if you don't have a a tabernacle or temple around. If you read Numbers chapter 4, there are detailed instructions. Here's how the ark is to be carried. Here's how it's to be kept. Here's what you're supposed to, to drape over it. Because normal Israelites aren't supposed to look at an uncovered ark. That was against the law of God. Whenever the ark left the tabernacle and later the temple, it was always covered. The details aren't quite clear, but it seems like the people of Beth Shemesh have put the ark up on like a big rock so that everyone can look at it. Now at best, this is unwise. And at worst, they think it doesn't really, it's not that big of a deal. God won't really care. We're creating a fun little roadside attraction And perhaps you're you're wondering, why is this such a big deal? It seems strange to us. We don't have objects like this, but what is at stake here is God's holiness and sanctity. God's trying to teach his people. He is a great God. He's worthy of respect. He's worthy of honor and reverence. And even though the ark, it's not him, it's just his footstool, that's what what the scriptures call it, it is to be treated with the kind of respect uh, that God himself deserves. Now, the story takes this quick sidebar in 17:18 to give more explanation of these golden tumors and golden mice. But then all of a sudden in verse 19, it says God stri- strikes down and kills 70 men from Beth Shemesh. And if you look at verse 19, the reason is because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Now, I, I suspect that verse probably bothers some of you. Like, why, well, why is that a big deal? They just, they just looked at the ark. Maybe you're wondering, maybe there's a clue in the Hebrew. Maybe, maybe pastor will tell us that it's something, something unique. But the word looked upon simply means to look at, or maybe to stare. Maybe they were looking in a prideful way. We're just not told. We're just told they were looking at it. There is something, though, in their irreverence, Something in in their casualness with the ark, the way they treated it, that caused God's wrath to break out against them. And let's give the Bible the seriousness it deserves. Like 70 people died. This is a town, maybe 10,000 people, that's what archeologists would say. That's a huge loss. And once again, God teaches his people a hard lesson. He's not just some God of stone and wood. He is the great God of heaven and earth. And he is to be treated with fear and trembling. And look at what happens after this. Verse 20, the men of Beth Shemesh say, well, who's able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? In a very curious twist, the Levites ask almost the same question the Philistines did last week. When disaster struck the Philistines, when they had the plague, their response was not repentance and humility and maybe there's something wrong with us. Their response was, how do we get this God away from us? He's too close. And now disaster strikes Israel and they say, how do we live in the presence of a God like this? Maybe there's somewhere else we can send him. Neither Philistine nor, or, nor Levite considers their own fault. They both just want to get God away. But they have an idea. They're like, let's, call, let's send messengers to this other town, kiriath let's ask them to come and get the ark. <laughs> now interestingly, kiriath jerem was not originally an Israelite town. It was a Gibeonite town. And the Gibeonites are one of these original peoples who were in Canaan before Israel showed up, but they had tricked Israel into making a truce with them. And they basically became this this laborer class, this peasant servant class in in Israel. And they were originally you know, not, not people of God, they were pagans, they had other gods. But over the long years, something's changed. And now when the Levites, when the priests need help to live in the presence of God, they're like, maybe the former Gibeonites can help and they call them. And to their credit, they come. In 7-1, says the men of Kiriath-Jerim come down and get the ark. They take it to Abinadab's house up on the hill and consecrate, that's like to set aside his son, Eleazar, to take care of the ark. And for 20 years, it lives in this house. I wanna talk about this question. How do we live in the presence of a holy God? See, this past few weeks, people keep making mistakes with the ark and it keeps costing them dearly. Hophni and Phinehas, remember those guys? Worthless men. They used, tried to use the Ark as a weapon and Israel suffered this massive defeat. 30,000 people died, 30,000 soldiers. Then the Philistines think, oh, we've defeated the Ark. We'll put it beside, we'll put it beside Argon, on, Ar- Argon on the trophy shelf and it leads to plagues and panic and many Philistines die and they get rid of the Ark and they send it back to the city of Levites who if anyone should know how to treat the Ark, but the Levites mess it up and a bunch of people die there. You read these three chapters, and it's just a trail of bodies. Wherever the ark go, people keep dying. Because either they don't know, or they refuse to treat God and his ark with the proper reverence. Everyone keeps coming to the same conclusion. It's not safe in the presence of God. This God, as I said last week, he is a tiger, and we are walking in his jungle. He's not in the zoo. He's not caged up. He is loose. Now, culturally, I think many of us have arrived at the place where our relationship with God, the way we relate to God, could best be described as casual, or chummy, or relaxed. And I think for a lot of us, maybe my generation, and maybe a little bit older, maybe a little bit younger, I don't know, but many of us reacted against overly harsh views of God that we grew up with where God was against everything fun. And you had, to, you had to wear your very best clothes to church. And Sundays were not, were not really that fun, but they were strictly for worship. And church culture had this very high view of God. It emphasized the fear of the Lord. And I think a lot of people, like myself, reacted against that picture because we felt it's, it's not complete. There's something true about it, but it's not complete. God's also a God of, of joy and beauty. And he gave us this good world to enjoy. And, and Sabbath is for rest as well as for worship. And perhaps clothing was never the best way to measure how sincere our faith was. I think a lot of that reaction was good and right. And maybe you feel that. But I think it may be time to wonder if we've gone too far. And like I have no intention of returning to suits and ties. But per- perhaps we've lost some of the fear of God that was right and good. For, for many of us, I'm not sure that we perceive God as holy and as righteous and are trembling in His presence. And I, and I worry for the next generation behind us that we may be running the risk of presenting a God who is merely a buddy. And I think these Old Testament stories, they get under our skin because they show us a side of God that many of us are like, I don't want to talk about that, I don't want to think about that, I don't want to emphasize that. But all over 1 Samuel, he's just not a tame God. He is good, he loves his people, he he is working for his people, but he is serious about things. The way he is to be approached, the way he is to be worshiped. And I'm not sure that we've really wrestled with how we can abide in the presence of such a God. So these two questions, what is the offering that will turn away God's wrath and how can we live in the presence of God? I think the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, the center of this story is actually a clue to the answers to these questions. A couple of weeks we talked about what the Ark was like, what it looked like, but a very quick reminder, because it's going to be important. The Ark is this box, a wooden box covered with gold, it was open topped but had a lid. Inside the Ark was a copy of the Ten Commandments with a couple of other things. And on the cover of the Ark were these two angels, two cherubim, with their, with their wings kind of stretched over the Ark. Now, the fact that the law of God, as represented by the Ten Commandments, is in the ark, is a reminder to us of God's holiness, that God demands obedience from his people. He's not a god like Dagon. He's not just one of the gods. He's king of kings and lord of lords, and he has given a law to his people, and he expects them to obey, and this inevitably becomes our great problem all of us, any of us, we have not kept the law, not perfectly, not with our whole hearts, and therefore we end up under judgment and under wrath. We have no way to live in the presence of a holy God because we keep messing up. But that's not all the ark is. The cover of the ark is regularly referred to in the scriptures as the mercy seat. And on the day of atonement, the high priest would come in and he'd sprinkle, he'd, he'd flick blood at the mercy seat And it was a reminder that only through blood could sins be forgiven. And the name for mercy seat in Greek is this word hilasterion, which is translated in the New Testament sometimes as propitiation. What it means is there was always a way going to be made uh, that people could become right with God through blood. And you're like, that sounds really gruesome. It kind of is. But listen, a person who understood the Ark of the Covenant could piece together some important truths. In our own strength, we are all under the judgment of God. The law has been broken. Mistakes have been made. We've not honored God rightly. And frankly, there's too much evil in the world. None of us can live in the presence of God. All of us are eventually gonna mess up. We're gonna find ourselves where the Philistines found themselves, where the men of Beth Shemesh found themselves. And yet, there is a mercy seat. In the mind and the plan of God, a way, was always going to be made for sins to be forgiven, for dirty people to be made clean. Blood was always going to be spilt, that the unrighteous might be made righteous. And the book of Hebrews talks about this more extensively than any other, I just wanna end with this. Hebrews ten twenty two tells us, the mercy seat being sprinkled with blood, that was a foreshadowing of the way our hearts would be sprinkled clean, same sprinkling with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, because of Jesus, we now enter the presence of God with confidence. That's what he says. He says, we can go confidently into the presence of God, not like the men of Bethshemeth, not like the Philistines who are saying, get away from me. We can come in with confidence because our sins have been forgiven, we've been sprinkled. What is the offering that turns away God's wrath? It's Jesus. How can we live in the presence of a holy God? It's Jesus. See, we ought not read this chapter and think, hey, we're pretty different than the men of uh, Felicity or Beth Shemesh. No, the only difference between them and us is we have understood that Christ has died for the unrighteous, that we might live in the light of God. May he have mercy on us. Let's pray. God, we are grateful and we are thankful for both the law and the mercy seat The law which shows us our need for a savior and the mercy seat which gives us the promise of a savior to come who we now have understood as Jesus himself. Help us to recognize that. Help us to live by that. Help us to believe both sides of that truth. May you open our eyes and open our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.